God bless you guys, man. You can have a seat. I'm excited. We're starting a brand new series today entitled, come on, anybody, The Me Mentality. Everybody say The Me Mentality. We live in a culture and society that is saturated with self. Everywhere you look, there are literally hundreds of words that begin with the word self. There are words like self-help. The majority of books that you find on the top sellers on Amazon or the New York bestseller list are self-help books. It's all about self. How do I get through this? How do I make a way through it? People who are self-appointed, people who just put themselves in positions or elevate themselves, people who are self-opinionated. They think the way they think is the only way to think. Self is everywhere. Again, out of the hundreds of words, again, I don't think many of us would debate the fact that we are, again, a society that's captured and focused on self. We have together a me mentality. Now, I know we don't recognize it because even though we can recognize the selfishness in the me, my, I in little children, I just want you to know just because you're older doesn't mean you don't have it. You just found a way to hide it. Because you know the bad attitude kicking and screaming is not socially acceptable for adults, but I want you to know whether you recognize it or not, all of us in this room, all of us in Lawrenceburg, we have this, this attitude on the inside. We have a me mentality. And so as we go through this series, here's the reason we need to talk about this, is because living life with me or self in the center is contrary to living a Christ-centered life. You can't have me in the middle and Christ in the center at the same time. So we got to break a me mentality that we can be the people that God's called us to be, a me mentality. So today we're going to talk about this idea of self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency. How many of us in this room have ever wondered or felt like I'm enough, self-sufficient? Because it can really be a challenge. It can really be a difficult thing, a bad thing to live with too much self-sufficiency. Let me ask this. How many of you in this room or in Lawrenceburg, you had a job when you were a teenager? Raise your hands. If you, like a real paycheck job if you were a teenager, had a job. How many of you didn't have a job when you were a teenager? All the spoiled brats, raise your hands. We see you. All the, all the people who drove BMWs at 16, raise your hand. We see you. So I had, I've always had jobs, always worked, even as a young kid. Real, real talk, like if, if there were snow on the ground, I was shoveling snow. If there were leaves on the ground, I was raking leaves. You know, if, there were, if, the, if the grass was growing, I was mowing lawns. But I got my real first job at 14 years old. 14 years old, every day after school, I was in junior high. I would leave, I would come home, and my job was Monday through Friday, five days a week for three hours a night, I cleaned the second floor of Barber Elementary School, 665 Gary Road, Akron, Ohio. Boom. And I'm just telling you, I know it doesn't sound like a lot now, but all the way back then when I was 14 years old, minimum wage was $3.15 an hour. Some of you crying on what it is now. It's $3.15 an hour, but I was rolling it at $3.76 an hour, which means as a 14-year-old kid, I was making about 100 bucks every other week. In today's economy, about $250 every other week. What I'm telling you is I was a one percenter in junior high. Fat stacks, I was popping Benji's. I had money. I was a big dog. I was a high roller. Come on. When you're 14 years old and you got that kind of money, I'm just telling you, it was, it was freeing. I was independent. I bought a gray leather jacket from Berman's Leather. Anybody remember Berman's Leather in the mall? I bought, I was one of the first dudes that had a moped. That's all mopeds did. But I could buy, here's what's crazy is, because I didn't grow up with a lot of money. My parents didn't have a lot of means. They always took care of us well. But 
once I had my own money, I could go where I wanted. I could buy what I wanted. Like if I went to mom and said, hey, do you got money for these shoes? She didn't have mine. I didn't get them. Now I got my own money. Now I can buy what I want. I'm just telling you, all of us, there's this desire in us as, as children, and we get into adolescence and younger, like we strive for this independence. Like I had independence really strong and established, so I thought when I was a kid. But the reality was, even though I felt independent, even though I felt self-sufficient, the reality was when I came home from my job, here's what you needed to know. First of all, I only got the job because my mom knew the person who was hiring. My parents let me work the job. And after I got my big dollars, my parents still provided a roof over my head. They still provided my food. They still provided my health care. They still bought my clothes. When I started driving, they still fixed my car. They still got my, what I'm telling you, what I'm trying to tell you is that my big self-sufficiency was an illusion. I was still depending on somebody else besides myself. No matter how independent you ever get in this world, you are still dependent on somebody above you. We are not self-sufficient. That is an illusion. But again, we live in a world that tells us things like this. You can do it. You're enough. You got this. And I think that's great. If, if you have friends that tell you that, you know, maybe you start your day off telling yourself that in the mirror. You got this. On one hand, there's really nothing wrong with trying to motivate yourself through a difficult season or get yourself to the job or get yourself in the gym. Here's what you need to know is at some point, uh, that self-sufficiency is going to be a lid to your life. You can only push yourself to, so far. You can only do so much for your life. If you're taking notes, self-sufficiency will keep you from God's sufficiency. I'm preaching better than y'all are helping me already. Your self, depending on you has a lid. Depending on what you have has a lid. But come on, God is all-sufficient. In fact, throughout Scripture, God reveals himself. God reveals himself. How do we know who God is? I mean, people have all kinds of opinions that God is a senile old man on a rocking chair on the edge of the universe who's disengaged from creation. Some of us have a picture of God that he's a cosmic cop just waiting to catch you doing wrong, or he's a, he's a judge in a robe who's ready just to hit judgment on you because you have messed up. How do we know what God is like? Well, the Bible is a revelation of God's nature and his character. So as you read the pages of scripture, you get a picture of who God is, of what God is like, of his character, his nature. And so one of the ways that God communicates who he is and what he's like is through his names. He tells us who he is. Well, in scripture, of the many names that God identifies or reveals himself as is this name right here. He uses it to, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, he says, I am El Shaddai. Everybody say El Shaddai. God says, I am El Shaddai. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, El Shaddai is Hebrew, and what it, what it means literally is the, is the mighty one. But what God is saying is he's saying, I'm all-sufficient. I'm the all-sufficient God. Everybody say all-sufficient. God is revealing himself as the all-sufficient God. Now, here's what's really crazy, is God uses this title about 50 different times in the Bible. What's more important is how many times he reveals himself as the all-sufficient one. What's more important is who he reveals himself as the all-sufficient one too. 
Because the majority of the 50 times that God uses the title, I'm all sufficient, happens to three different people. Happens number one to Abraham, happens number two to Job, and happens number three to the nation of Israel while they're in the wilderness. Here's why that's important. is because if you know the story of Abraham, Abraham was an old man who had a promise that he would have a kid, but he was not, he didn't no longer have the capacity as an old man who was married to an old woman. They both had bad plumbing at that point in life. No blue pills back then. They was out of luck. They had a promise they couldn't do anything about. Y'all, come on. This is adult service. We're not in the kids' service. Come on, y'all can laugh with me. Can we laugh at that? Yes, it's funny. And so what I'm telling you is that he had a promise that he couldn't provide for, but God said, don't you worry about it because I'm telling you, I am the all-sufficient one. You have a promise that you can't fulfill. I can meet that need. The second person God reveals himself to multiple times is Job. And if you know Job's story, Job is a man who lost everything. He lost his wife. He lost his kids. He lost his career. He lost his income. He lost his house. He lost everything. God said, you may not have anything and you may not know how you're going to get it back, but I want you to know something. I'm El Shaddai. I'm the all-sufficient one. The nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness and they didn't have a job. They didn't have careers. They didn't have 401ks, 403bs. They didn't have anything to do to provide for themselves. But God said, don't you worry about it. I am El Shaddai. What I'm telling you is if you have a promise, but you don't know how to get there, if, you have, if you've lost everything or you have nothing, the solution to your struggle is not who you are, but who he is. God is El Shaddai. Come on, somebody. He is all sufficient. Come on, Lawrenceburg. We serve an all-sufficient God. Now, what's important as well is it's not just that God reveals himself through his name that way. In fact, God tries to reveal this principle through probably what I would say is two of the most common sections in scripture, and that's the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer. God is echoing this, this idea of the sufficiency of God. In the 23rd Psalm, it's there that David records, the Lord is my shepherd. Come on, the Lord is my shepherd and what? I shall not want. What he was saying was, I serve a God who's able to meet every need I have. Whatever, wherever there's a lack, wherever there's a gap, wherever there's a struggle, I serve a God. Come on, he is, he's El Shaddai. He's my shepherd. He can provide what I need. And then Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. Come on, say it. Give us this day. What? our daily bread. Do you know what he was trying to teach Jesus, his disciples, is that God is your father and he is El Shaddai. The same way a shepherd provides for a sheep, we have a father who provides for his children. You may think you're independent, but you are dependent on a shepherd. You may think you're flying solo, but the truth is you are subject to your father. But the good news is he is El Shaddai. Come on, whatever your need is, he can provide it. I'm not talking about just food. I'm not talking about your McDonald's meal. Come on. I'm talking about emotional bread, spiritual bread, physical bread, relational bread, whatever your need is. Come on. Your heavenly father is El Shaddai and he can provide it. I wish somebody here would believe that. El Shaddai. The problem is, even though we hear that, most of us start to live life in this idea that we don't really need that. But what you need to hear is that sometimes your weakness is your greatest strength. 
To be able to recognize that you're in a position that you're not enough is really a blessing. Because as long as you think you're enough, as long as you live with the attitude, I got this, I'm all that, I can make it, I'm good, then you're going to be dependent on who you are and what you can do. But listen to me, once you humble yourself to be bold enough to say, I'm not enough, I can't do this, sometimes it's okay to say, I'm weak. Because in declaring your weakness, we declare his strength. See, no matter how strong you are, no matter how strong you are, your strength has a limit. But God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. No matter how knowledge, knowledgeable you are, no matter how many degrees you have, no matter how wise you are, your knowledge has a limit. But God is omniscient. He's the all-knowing one. Your resources, come on, you might be rolling fat stacks. You might have a great job, a great career. You might have plenty of friends, plenty of money, plenty of whatever, but your resources have a limit, but there is somebody who is El Shaddai. He is the all-sufficient one. Come on, somebody, and that's who we got to lean into. So as long as you are living the me mentality, your life is capped. It's got a lid. It can only go so far. But when we humble ourselves, when we bend our knee, when we recognize and confess we're not enough, it allows us to step into the relationship that God wants us to have. That no matter who you are and what you're going through, no matter what your struggle, no matter what your issue, no matter what your heartache, again, he is sufficient and he is able to meet it. Come on, somebody, that God is enough. He's enough. He's enough. Come on, everybody say that. He's enough. Tell somebody next to you, he's enough. Lawrence, come on, tell somebody, he is enough. He's all sufficient. He's all sufficient. Now, again, we don't always live this way. We don't always navigate this way. We get caught up in ourselves, trying to look to ourselves, trust in ourselves, rest in ourselves, work in our own strength. But if you can do it on your own, you don't need Jesus. And a lot of us, we are living life as if we don't need Jesus. And that's why you're tapped out. That's why you're struggling. That's why you're sinking. And so what I want us to do is I want us to lean into a story. It's found in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Chronicles. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. You, we'll, we can check this out together. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's a story about this guy by the name of David. David is currently king over the nation of Israel. And David puts self-sufficiency on full display. And God clearly tells us what he thinks about self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency isn't a bad idea. It's a sin. And so here's the story. King David, he's in this position, and the whole story is he takes a census of all the people in the kingdom. Now, we just took a census 2020 for our entire nation. Nations have been taking censuses for hundreds and I would imagine millennia. This is what David does. David takes a census, and here's the story. It's what he did, and it's what God says. Verse 1. It says, Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of all the people of Israel. And so David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of the people of Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north. These were the boundaries. And bring me a report so I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, may the Lord increase the number of his people a hundred times over. But why, my Lord, the king, do you want to do this? Are, you not, are they not all your servants? Why must you cause Israel to sin? Well, I'm telling you is that his, his own counsel knew it was a bad idea. You don't need to take a census. You don't need to count the people. And watch verse four, it says, these four words, everybody read these, but the king insisted. 
Anybody here ever have friends tell you it's not a good idea, you shouldn't do it, you knew you shouldn't do it, but you insisted and did it anyways? How'd that work out for you? David knew he shouldn't, Joab said he shouldn't, but he did it anyways, but the king insisted that they take the census. So Joab traveled throughout all of Israel to count the people, then he returned to Jerusalem. Verse seven, formal words, everyone read it with me. God was very with the census and he punished Israel for it. Now here's a question. Why was God so bothered that David counted the people? Because it was the census, S-I-N, census. Never mind, church humor. <laughs> Didn't land near as good as I thought it would. Thanks, I, thank you. It'll hit you later. About lunchtime, you guys are gonna be like, that old pastor, he's funny, census. <laughs> don't be telling your kids that joke. No, no, if you ain't gonna give me credit, you don't get to use it. So here's the question. Why, why was God displeased that David took a census? Kings have been doing it forever. Why did God care if David counted the people? Why? Well, I can't really answer the question until I tell you this. It's not the first time someone in charge took a census of the people. In fact, hundreds of years earlier, Moses took a census of the people, okay? And we need to see the difference because David takes a census. God is displeased. Moses is commanded, or yeah, Moses is commanded by God to take a census. It's found in the book of Numbers. And the reason it's called Numbers is because it's about numbers, the book of Numbers starts with Moses taking a census and ends with Moses taking a census. That's why it's called the book of Numbers. I want you to see this. Watch. In, uh, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, a year after Israel's departure from Egypt. This is so important. Catch that first part. A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness of Sinai. On the first day of the second month of that year, he said, from the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors by their clans and their families. And he goes on and tells him about how Moses should take this sentence. So again, here's the question. Why was it, why was it okay for Moses to take a sentence, census, but it was wrong for David to take a census? Here's why, and this is so important. It's because what David was doing, David was trying to flex on his own ability. David was trying to establish this is who I am. See, David at one time recognized, come on, the Lord is my strength and he's my shield. At one time in the book of Psalms, David recorded some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but I trust in the name of my God. There was a time he said, it's not about how big my army is. It's about how big my God is. See, God had always promised the nation of Israel victory, not because they were strong enough, but because he was good enough. What David was doing, taking a census was he wanted to make sure somehow his military might was big enough that no matter what he faced, he could overcome, not because of his God, but because of his army. David had lost his focus on being God sufficient, started being self-sufficient. And God said, no, 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 my people can only count on me and not count on themselves. Are y'all hearing me? So the issue was David was counting on himself. But now watch this. Moses, his attitude was all different because it says the census happened when? One year after they left Egypt in the wilderness. Here's why that's important. So for 400 years, God's people are in the nation of Israel as slaves. God sends the rescuer Moses to overcome Pharaoh, the nation of, uh, nation of Egypt. God brings his people out. And now they've been in the wilderness where they have no homes, no jobs, no crops, no careers, no money. They don't have anything on their own. And one year later, God says, now I want you to count the people. 
Do you know why that's important? Because when they counted the people, there was about a million people. Here's why that's important. Because it was only after one year, God said, I want you to look back and say, how in the heck did we make it this far? How do we, how do we feed the people? How do we survive? How do we make it here? We only made it because God was good to us. Come on, when we had nothing to eat, God was providing manna from heaven because God is El Shaddai. He is the God who shows up and meets our needs. Has anybody, have you ever been in a place where you in a difficult season and you don't even know how you made it? Just every day you woke up tired, you plowed through the day and you went to bed tired. And at some point you got far enough down the road, you looked over your shoulder and said, how in the world did I make it through that? Only to realize it was God who carried you, God who provided for you, God who gave you strength. That's what God is telling Moses to do is I want you to realize I'm responsible for getting you through the wilderness this first year. And at the, end of four, at the end of 40 years, God said, count again, because now I provided quail, now I provided water. See, some scientists have said this, in order to feed a million people in the wilderness, in order to give enough H2O, agua, to a million people and all of their cattle and herds, it would take a water pipe 25 foot. That's from that ceiling down here, gushing water 24 hours a day. And it would take the equivalent of 25 boxcars of trains full of food to feed that many people. And God did it every day for a year. And Moses looked back and said, I, I, I don't even know how we made it. It was only God. Um, it, was, it was El Shaddai. He's the one who showed up. He's the one who made a way. He promised he would take care of us. And I didn't know if he would, but man, I have found that my God is faithful. See, David was flexing to say, look how strong I am. Moses was celebrating to say, look how strong God is. God is the, he is the all-sufficient one. Come on, he is El Shaddai. If you're taking notes, here's what I want you to hear. David's census was to establish how self-sufficient he was, how sufficient he was. Moses' census was to establish how sufficient, come on, God is. Anybody here thankful we serve a God who's El Shaddai? Come on, is anybody here, honestly, you've ever seen God faithful and he's come through, he showed up, he's met some needs? Come on. That's right. See, the challenge is a lot of us are counting we're not taking a census of our nations. A lot of us count, though. We go through life and we count. The problem is we're counting the wrong thing. We're counting us instead of God. Think about your careers for a minute. If you're rolling, man, things are good. You got a healthy bank account. Like, you got no worries. And let me just qualify that. I'm not talking about like 1%. Or, if you can go through the grocery store and put whatever you want in your cart, and you ain't got to keep track, I'm talking to you. There was a time we went to the store where I said, you got to put that back. There's times we went to the store where we didn't realize we had to put it back until we're in the line. It's too late and you're embarrassed. I'm going to place now and put whatever I want in my cart and it doesn't matter. Now you can look at your career and you can look at your, and you can either count and say, look what I've done. Man, I'm enough. Man, I'm rolling. It's all because of how smart I am, how good I am, how strong I am. Or you can realize I am where I am because of El Shaddai. He is my provider. He is my resource. He's my supplier. See, we're all counting. Are you counting your sufficiency or are you counting God's sufficiency? Do you have a me mentality or a him mentality? See, man, it's, and if you're here and you're like trying to figure out your career, you're on the front end, you're in college or you just graduated college and like you're looking at your resume and you're, maybe you're thinking like, I didn't take the right classes. I don't have the right degree. I didn't go to the right school. And so you're worried and you're concerned about your future. I just want you to know something. It's not your resume that opens doors. It's your God that opens doors. He can do more than your resume ever can. Why? If you depend on self-sufficiency, you're going to go where you can get to. But if you'll trust on God, God will get you places you can never get to on your own because he's El Shaddai. Relationships. 
I, I think that, no, I, I didn't get really feedback from the first service. It feels like guys don't really wear cologne anymore. It feels that way. I'm rolling right now, polo black, just so you know. Get next to me, you'll smell it. But anybody remember, the, like, at least the generation I came up, dudes started wearing, like, as soon as you got junior high, guys started wearing cologne. Because in junior high, you wore cologne not after a shower, but instead of a shower. Come on, can we just be honest? And early on, I started rolling brute. Don't, don't, don't act like you didn't have it. It sold a million bottles to somebody. But remember the job I was telling you? So when I got about 14, I upgraded from Brute to Adidas. <laughs> Hindsight, that wasn't really much of an upgrade, but at the time, I was rolling. And then I hit high school, and all of high school, I wore Dracar. Ooh, you could smell me coming. <laughs> but all the rest, and some of you aren't celebrating, because some of you from the generation, I wore Dracar. Everybody else, at least not, all the high schools I went to wore Obsession. Anybody remember Obsession? Hmm. Thanks, thanks for that feedback. Not a, not a fan right here. But I'm just telling you, you know, I, I can remember the night I met Shauna. I looked good and I smelled good. And it helped. <laughs> but can I just tell you something about the sufficiency of God? I don't have a beautiful wife and a life partner because of how good I looked and how good I smelled and how good God was. God was El Shaddai. He landed me someone way outside of my league. Come on, because he is El Shaddai. I'm here to tell you, listen to me, if you're looking for a partner in life, if you're, if you're a guy and you're looking for the woman you're going to spend the rest of your life with or vice versa, where's my life partner? Where's the person I'm going to marry? And you're looking like you got some deficiencies. You don't look as good. You ain't got six-pack abs. You ain't got the body you think the world tells you you should have. Something's wrong with your rest. You got a child from a marriage that, that, that broke up or you weren't even married and you feel like you got this baggage and nobody wants you. If you're depending on who you are and your resources, you may live life alone. But if you'll humble yourself and look at El Shaddai, he can provide the life partner he designed and created you to have. Come on, somebody. That's who he is. If you have a calling on your life and you're wondering, am I enough? I want you to know, you may not be enough, but El Shaddai is enough. When I look at everything that God's done through my ministry in 30 years, I celebrate it. You better believe I work hard. You better believe I pray hard. You better believe I strategize well. And while I look at everything God's given me the strength to do, I recognize this house is blessed and growing, not because of self-sufficiency, because of God's sufficiency. We're all counting. You got to count the right count. And it's who God is and not who we are. He is El Shaddai, if you have an addiction in your life and you're figuring out, can I break it? Can I overcome it? In your strength, no, but in Christ, come on, you can do all things because he is sufficient. He's sufficient. He's enough. Now, here's what's crazy is David in the moment starts to look at himself. How big is my army? Are we secure? Can I do this? Again, God's response to David's count was the Lord was displeased. And this isn't popular what I'm going to preach, but I'm not interested in what's pop, preaching popular. I want to preach what's biblical. Just a few weeks ago, I did a whole message, and the whole point was this, that your choices have consequences, and sin is judged. Ultimately, we find relief from that judgment because Jesus took our judgment on the cross of Calvary. Is anybody thankful for Jesus? But sometimes in life, we still face consequences. And so God is about to judge David's disobedience for his self-sufficiency. The crazy thing is God gives David a choice of what his judgment should be. 
which seems weird. Anybody grow up in a house or maybe a grandparent, it wasn't in my house, but I, and I've heard this, where your, your mom or your dad or your grandparent like, would make you go, you go find the switch. Like you're gonna get a, they're going to give you a beating, but you go find the switch. It was like the punishment was established. You just got to pick how it felt. This is what, so he disobeys God and God says judgment's coming, but I'm going to let you pick your judgment. And I want you to read this. This is so important. Listen to this. In 1 Chronicles 21, verse 12 and 13, it says this. David got to choose, I'm sorry, verse 12 says, you may choose three years of famine, three months of destruction by the sword of your enemies, or three days of a severe plague as the angel of the Lord brings devastation throughout the land. So God says, you get to pick. Do you want, do you want to be on the run from your enemies for three years? Or uh, do you want a famine for three years? Do you want to be on the run from your enemies for three months or three days? And I'm going to send a plague on the land. What would you pick? I'd say, is there any, is there an option four? <laughs> this prophet Gad is the guy who's talking to David on behalf of the Lord. And he says this, decide what answer I should give the Lord who sent me. And David says, I'm in a desperate situation. David replied to Gad, but let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great. And do not let me fall into human hands. Here's why this is important. Is because in the moment when David, once he already knew he made the bad decision and counted on self-sufficiency instead of God's sufficiency, he knew judgment was coming. Now he got to pick his judgment. It's so important that we all recognize together, Lawrenceburg and Florence, of what David picked and why he picked it. Because in the issue of three years of famine, what David knew was, if I, if I take the famine route, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be dependent on the mercy of men. Because if there's no food growing here, we're gonna have to go to other nations and beg them for food. And they're gonna only give us the amount of food equivalent to their mercy. Are y'all hearing me? He said, if we go the three-month route where I'm, I'm being attacked by my enemies, he said, I'm still subject on the mercy of men that's capped and limited. They're only going to beat us, or they're only going to limit their beating on us of how merciful they are. And since there's a lid to their mercy, I don't want to be subject to the limited mercy of men. But he recognized something. He recognized God was El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. And if I'm going to be subject to anybody, let me be subject that there's no limit to the mercy of God. And if God's going to send judgment, then let it be a pestilence. It's not up to any man, and I'm going to put myself subject to the mercy of God. Here's why that's important is because he didn't recognize until it was too late. And we're this way. We get ourselves in a bad situation, and we realize God can get me out of this. What we need to recognize is God just can't get you out of something. God has a sufficiency to keep you out of something. Come on, we pray after we're already in the mess. We need to turn to God in the beginning. Come on, you're waiting on an opportunity, waiting for a job, waiting for a door to open, waiting for God to meet your need, waiting for God to give you strength. Listen, let's not make bad decisions and get ourselves in a fix. Let's decide up front that I don't have to live this life with a me mentality focused on me, my I, you don't have to wonder, do I have enough strength? I'm not telling you, you don't have a part to play. I'm telling you at the end of the day, it's not you. It's not how smart you are. It's not how much money you have. It's not how influential you are. It's not your friends. It's not your bank account. It's not your degrees. It's not your looks. It's not what family you came from, what side of the tracks you came from, what family you grew up in, what career path you're on. This world wants you to look in the mirror and convince yourself you're enough. And some of us have bought the lie. And then when we realize we're not enough, we start to quit. Well, maybe I'm not enough. And the answer is, yes, you're right. But you got to take one step further 
and we have to come to the conclusion, but there is somebody who told us, who showed us, who promised us. He's enough. And he can meet all of my needs according to his riches and glory. He's El Shaddai. And he said it over and over, and he promised it over and over. What you need to hear is God's sufficiency is always the solution. God's sufficiency is always the solution. Not where do you look last, where do you look first? Tomorrow, going back to class, stepping into the job, waking up into the marriage, waiting for the opportunity, praying for the business. God is all sufficient. I am El Shaddai, the all sufficient one. I wanna close with one more section of scripture. And it's found in the book of Revelation. In the front end, the first couple chapters, God sends a messenger to speak to these seven regional churches. And they're known by the name of the city they're found. And what's interesting, you need to hear this up front, is even though that message is specific to that regional church at that time, it still speaks to the global church today. So what God said to them then applies to us now. Now I want you to hear this. Everybody lean in, I'm almost done. The city that he's talking to is a city called Laodicea. Now, what you need to know is a couple things about this city. First of all, fat stacks, deep rollers, they had money. They were the one percenters of the region. And they got their money because in a world that was flooded with white wool, Laodicea had the ability to produce black wool. And so if you wanted to roll with what was in style, you had to pay big bucks, but you got black wool to create black garments from Laodicea. So they produced black wool that made them filthy rich. Number three, besides their black wool and their money, number three, they were known in the region at that time for being the place of optometry. That that's where you would go to get your eyes fixed because Laodicea produced a salve that would heal a lot of eye diseases. So if you have an eye issue, go to Laodicea. If you want to get black wool, go to Laodicea. And because of their resources, they were wealthy. With that in mind, I want you to hear what God tells the believers in Laodicea. God says, you say, this is your opinion of yourself. I got it. I can do it. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that's been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments for me so you'll be not ashamed by your nakedness. Anointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. What God is saying is you think you got everything you need because you got money in your bank account, because you got eye salve to heal, heal physical eye issues, because you got classy garments on, because you're rolling the most modern, the hippest, and the best. God says you might as well be naked because until you put on what I can provide, you're naked. You think you got eye salve that'll heal eye diseases. Really, you're blind until you invite me to be El Shaddai, the one who can provide. You're really walking through this world blind. You're not rich. You think you're rich till you tap into my wealth. You're poor. He's saying all the people that think you're self-sufficient and you got this, God's saying for my ability to bless you, my ability to provide, you're really wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And if you want to live life on your own, if you want to follow the 
path of this world with a me mentality? You can. That's the beauty of God. He says, you choose. Choose this day whom you'll serve. But if you'll come to a God who loves you, who's your shepherd, who's your father, he says, in every season, in every situation, every day, every opportunity, every struggle, I'll be El Shaddai. I'll be all that you need because I'm all sufficient. How many of us here in Florence and Lawrenceburg would say maybe they need to lean a little longer and a little closer and a little more on Jesus? Father, I love you. Lord, will you help us? God, break us of self-sufficiency. God, there's a strength and a hope and a peace and a joy and a resource that we can tap into in who you are if we will humble ourselves. So Lord, I pray, God, forgive us for trusting in ourselves. Help us more, God, to trust in you, to call on you, to rely on you. And we declare today that you are El Shaddai. You are the all-sufficient one. In Jesus' name, and everybody who greets that, amen.